turn in your Bibles, if you have not already, to Psalm 30 that Scott read for us. Now that word, temple, in the heading of the psalm, could also be translated as house. And so, the occasion for the psalm is actually a little unclear. It could have been used when... David finished gathering all the raw materials that Solomon would later use in the construction of the temple as, as the temple was the place of spiritual healing and restoration, much of the imagery that's in the psalm would actually fit that occasion, fit such a dedication. Or this psalm could have been used, could have been written when David leaving behind long years of war and entering into a season of peace built his own house. It was an occasion for him to look back over the course of his entire life and celebrate the overarching faithfulness of God toward him. So really, we can't say for sure whether this uh, house being dedicated is David's house or God's house. But what we can see, obviously, in this psalm is that David has passed through some dark days into much brighter days. And he invites his people to join him as he sings his thanksgiving for all that the Lord has done for him. Now, David does that. He invites them in, invites his people into his song because he is their king. And at this time in the story of redemption, there was a very real sense in which whatever the Lord did for his anointed king, he did it for his people too. And the saying is, as goes the king, so goes the people. Because danger to the king meant danger to all of the people. Sin in the king meant trouble for all the people. But mercy and healing of the king, mercy toward the king, meant that his people were rescued too. And so in other words... For David to pass through a night of weeping into a morning of joy meant his people could say that they saw the dawn of that same joyful, joyous moment, same joyous morning for themselves. Now, I, I'm not trying to say that the Lord did not deal with David's people at all. They could expect their God to rescue them and restore them as they too relied on him for mercy. They, too, had reason to give thanks for themselves because they were saints of God, as David calls them in verse 5. They were his holy ones who live with God's favor on their heads as they embraced the Lord and his covenant for themselves. But the king was the representative of the people. And this song of restoration to life, as he says in verse 3, becomes the song of his people because it was David's first. For you and me, then, the way for us to experience this psalm is not to read this individualistically, even, even though we're going to see how all the blessings in it really are yours. Instead, we must first read this psalm as it is really ours in and through our King Jesus. He is the truer, 
better king over God's people. And as you embrace him by faith as your savior and king, the promise of his joy is God's promise to you in him. To say that another way, just because this joy that we hear in this psalm, just because this joy is Jesus's first, does not make it any less yours. In fact, because it is Jesus's joy, it makes it yours all the more securely. To help us better understand this joy that is ours in Christ, we're going to ask a series of questions and look at the answers in the three main sections of this psalm. First, our first question is, what does the Lord do for his people? What does he do for his people? Second, how do we misunderstand what's happening? How do we misunderstand what's happening? But third and finally, what is the Lord still committed to do? What's he still committed to do? But first, think about this question with me. What does the Lord do for his people? To answer it, let's look at verses 1 through 5. The, the first words here from David's lips are to extol or to lift up, to exalt the Lord. His aim is actually to celebrate the Lord himself, which he's going to do by remembering what the Lord has done for him. This is actually an element of worship that you and I can't miss. Much of what is called worship today celebrates the gifts of God, but they neglect, it neglects the giver himself. David is about to celebrate the gifts that God has given him, and so will we. But David won't be like a spoiled child at Christmas who gets his presents and then ignores the parents who gave them. In this song, David crawls up into the lap of his God, bringing his presents with them so that they can enjoy each other and enjoy the presence together. But I do want you to look at the gifts that the Lord gave to David in verses 1 through 3. Follow the verbs in these verses. David says, you have drawn me up. Like a man who's been rescued from a deep well, the Lord has lifted David up out of deep affliction. And we see something of the source of that affliction in the next line. David was hard-pressed by strong opponents over and over and over again through his life. And yet, now he can say, you have not let my foes rejoice over me. How many of Saul's people would have been glad to see David run through by Saul's spear? How many of the Philistines would have been glad to have David's dead body chained to the wall of their town? How many of Absalom's men, David's own son, how many of Absalom's men would have gladly cut David down in that rebellion? And yet the Lord did not allow any of them to rejoice over David. There's more there. Look at verse 2. David cried for help. And what did the Lord do? You have healed me. You have healed me, David says. Well, we don't know if this was a physical sickness or a spiritual sickness. We just don't know. But to David, this was clearly a matter of life and death. Because look at verse 3. The Lord brought up his soul from Sheol, from the place of the dead. In David's own eyes, he was as good as dead. But he says to the Lord, you restored me to life. This gift of rescue 
this bringing David back to life from the brink of death, leads David to call God's people to join him in worship, give thanks to his holy name, David says in verse 4. Because of what God, uh, because what God has done flows from who God is. His name is the expression of his holy character. Yes, his holy character that is sometimes expressed in wrath, but it's also expressed in mercy. And so sing praises and give thanks, David says, for his anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Towards his people, David is saying, any anger, any anger he deservedly displays toward us will pass as quickly as a summer storm. But once he sets his favor on us, he never takes it away. This is the same truth that David rests in. In Psalm 23, he sighs contentedly, and we can sigh with him, saying, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. This confidence in the constancy of God, of God's favor on his king and on his people, it enables David to reframe all of his expectations about life, about all of life. Because of the steadfastness of God, sorrow will not have the last word in David's life or the life of any of God's people. Weeping, David comforts us, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning, he says. As one writer puts it, though there is indeed weeping in the lives of the faithful, Sometimes because of our misdeeds that have incurred God's anger, sometimes just because of suffering that comes from living in a, in a fallen world, weeping comes to an end. Mourning stands for the time when God gives relief. It, it might not arrive until the last day, but it will surely come. But weeping, in, in this imagery here, weeping is like a visitor who shows up unannounced in the evening, demanding a room under your roof. And yet in the morning, a new visitor arrives to drive out that unwanted guest. Joy, the most welcome of guests. Joy comes and then doesn't leave. If our question is about what the Lord does for his people, then David sings his answer. David's answer is the Lord restores his people to life under his favor. He restores his people to a life of enduring joy. This is the answer that David gives as God's king, and he's encouraging his people with the hope that what God has done for him, God will do for them too. And for you and me today, it is here that we must read this psalm, not only as David's psalm, but ultimately as Jesus' psalm, meant to encourage our hearts as well. Because Jesus experienced this same restoration to life, only he experienced in a way that is fuller and deeper than David could have imagined. Because if David was drawn up from the depths of deep affliction, then our God drew Christ up from even deeper affliction because he sunk not beneath 
the, the weight of his own troubles, but under the sins of the whole world. If David could say that he had been healed, then Christ, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, whose body itself was pierced for our sins, the risen Christ could say that he had been healed, even though the wounds of our redemption remained in his glorified body. If David could say that his soul was rescued from the place of the dead, that the Lord restored him to life, then how much more could Jesus sing of his restoration to life when he walked out of the grave itself on that Sunday morning? Because for a moment he had suffered beneath the burning anger of God, not for his sins, but for our own. And yet after that dark moment of weeping came the dawn of his resurrection and the morning of his joy. So this song, we have to see that this song is ultimately Jesus' resurrection song. When the house of his body was restored, rededicated in service of God as our Redeemer, as our King. And in this resurrection of Jesus, we see God's intention not only for Jesus, but for you and for me. His plan is to restore us to life under his favor, to a life of enduring joy. As I said before, the fact that this is Jesus' song first is actually what makes this song most certainly yours. Because as you cling to Christ, you can celebrate the reality that what God has done for Jesus in restoring him to life, God is doing that for you in Christ. As you belong to Christ by faith, the Lord is restoring you to life as it is meant to be. In Christ, God is drawing you up out of affliction. In Christ, none of your enemies will rejoice over you. In Christ is your healing from sin, from every wound you've received from others, and from every wound that you have given to yourself. In Christ, you can rest assured that God's anger that the Father's anger will only be for a moment, and even it is only designed to burn away the dross of sin that remains in you. Because in Christ, the favor of God is upon you. Indeed, it was actually his favor that led him to give you the gift of faith in Christ in the first place, so that by his Spirit he might unite you to Jesus. And promise to you that on the dawn of the last day, your sorrow must and will turn to joy. Since the dawn of your salvation has arrived. That joy is yours already, even now, because in Christ you have already passed through death into eternal life. Do you understand that it's already begun for you? No, all is not yet as it should be. There is, you know that there's still so much to be over in this life. But even now, you who cling to Jesus as king have entered into a better rest than David and his people did. David, yes, sings from a place of security and peace. His enemies were subdued. His house was built. His kingdom was secure. But Jesus sings as one who was dead and behold is alive forevermore. Your king sings as the bringer of peace, total peace between God and men. He sings as one whose enemies will soon be subdued beneath his feet. And even now, 
His church is His kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it cannot fail to grow. And that is the kingdom that you, as His people, have a share in. But at this point, we have to ask that second big question. If the Lord is restoring His people to life, then how do we so often misunderstand what's happening? Look at verses 6 through 10. In, in verse 6, David starts with a confession. In his prosperity, he says, in his prosperity, he's been careless. Having come into a place of peace, having come into a place of plenty, having come into a place of security, David made a foolish boast. He said, I shall never be moved. On a number of occasions, I've seen an exercise done called the four chairs. The four chairs. In it, four chairs, as you can guess, are set up in a row. And a person, one person, is supposed to sit down in the first chair. In that first chair, they are supposed to tell the others in the room what they believe their God-given mission is. The, the thing that God wants them to be doing, the thing that God is calling them to do with their life. They can be as general or as specific as they want. They can talk about the mission that they sense from God in their vocation. They can talk about what they believe God is calling them to do with their family. But after that time in the first chair, after they talk about what God is calling them to do, they have to move to the second chair. In it, as the exercise goes, in that second chair, they must play the part of the devil himself. And they have to speak to the man in the first chair. They have to speak to themselves. And they have to share with everyone in the room what the enemy says to them as they try to accomplish the mission that God has given to them. You can imagine what most people say when they speak out loud what the enemy whispers in their ear. For most people, it's accusation after accusation. The enemy heaping shame on them for their many sins, their many failures to be and do what God is calling them to be and do. Only once. Have I heard of a man in the second chair saying something different than those heap accusations? He said when he hears the voice of the enemy whispering a lie in his ear, what he hears is actually the very thing that David believes in this moment. Thinking about his God-given mission, the man hears the devil saying, You've got this. You've got this. David found himself in that place, living under the Lord's favor, as he says in verse 7, David's mountain, which is representative of his whole life and kingdom. David's mountain stood strong, he says, under God's favor. His circumstances were easy, and in that ease, his great mistake was falling into a forgetful self Confidence, convincing himself that he's got this. 
Did you notice how he spoke without any reference to the Lord or his favor? Listen to what he says. I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. There is a careless boasting in David here. He's heedless in this moment. He was heedless of his frailty. Maybe you can see yourself in David here. Here, David is not so much representing how God's anointed king should be, but rather he is representing how all of us tend to behave when things are good. Because it so often happens that when God pours out his favor on us, we misunderstand what's happening. How? We forget our frailty. And we relapse into self-confidence, thinking we've got it from here. But all it takes is for the Lord, like Scott was saying, all it takes is for the Lord to hide his face for a moment and the whole illusion crumbles. Our self-confidence shatters. And when it happened to David, he says, I was dismayed. Literally, he says, I was terrified. Maybe you feel that same terror in your own soul. Maybe the mountain of your life that once seemed unmovable is shaking right now. And you feel your weakness. More than that, you feel your foolishness. Forever depending on yourself in the first place. I want to encourage you here that if you feel lost and dismayed, then take heart because David is actually showing you the way back. Listen to David as he turns away from his sinful self-confidence and he relies again on the mercy of the Lord. Listen to him in verse 8. He cries to the Lord for mercy. He begins by asking, what profit is there in my death? He feels that he is right on the edge of death once again. And he asks, what profit is there? In a way, he's actually asking the right question. He's starting from the right place because, as one writer points out, David is starting with a consideration of the Lord's interest, not his own. Lord, what good is it going to do for you for me to die? It's like he's saying, Lord, if you don't keep me alive, you will gain nothing. And you're going to lose a worshiper. Well, well as the directionality of his questions are actually correct, his questions about what God might gain are ultimately unanswered. And those kinds of questions are totally unanswerable by us. So David does the only sane thing that a person in his situation can do. At the end of verse 8, he stops arguing and he just throws himself completely on the mercy of the Lord. Would you and I forget how frail we really are, but by God's grace suddenly remember it, suddenly realize it again? David shows us the way back. It's through repentance. It's, it's through a renewed reliance on our Lord's mercy. We have to, again and again, renounce all self-confidence and humbly return ourselves to the Lord. We have to rely on His merciful character, the mercy that He is ready to display. But when we do that, 
you and I so often have that nagging question in our minds. What will the Lord do? That's the third question that really needs answering. As we look to Him for mercy, we need to know what is the Lord still committed to do? What is He still committed to do? And to answer that question, look at the good news that is in verses 11 and 12. Even in the face of David's self-confidence, his forgetful self-confidence, even though David believed the lie, thinking, I've got this, even so, the Lord responds to his repentance and his plea for mercy by giving David the very mercy that he asked for. Though David, recognizing his sin, is dressed for mourning. He's wearing that rough sackcloth that people in his day wore to demonstrate sorrow. Even though he was dressed like that, the Lord takes it off of him and gives him a better covering, clothing him, he says, in gladness. This is a picture for us, not only of forgiveness, but of full salvation. This is not a picture just of a clean slate, but of total righteousness reckoned. This is not a picture for us of cold pardon for sin from a distance. This is a picture for us of a warm, welcome home. In so many places in the story of redemption, God answers for us this question about what He is committed to do for us, even in the face of our sin. He answered it when He took away Adam and Eve's totally inadequate coverings of fig leaves. And he gave them the covering of animal skins to cover their shame. He answered it when he gave his people David as king, as a replacement for the terrible King Saul that they wanted for themselves. In all throughout the scriptures, God tells his people, he answers our question. He tells us that he is still committed to turning our mourning into dancing. And this is, again, where the gospel of Jesus meets us. And God assures us in Christ that we have a better king than David ever was. Because our Lord, Jesus, our king, was tempted in every way as we are, and yet passed every test without sin. And that made him the perfect savior that you and I needed. He's the perfect helper that we need in our weakness. Because he never succumbed. To self-confidence. Because he always relied on the Father. Even while he hung on the cross for our sins. Because of this, he is able to save you. And by faith in him, God's promise to you is that he will not forsake you. He won't forsake you to the depths, but he will keep you secure in Christ. Though you fall, yet you shall rise. Because Christ himself will lift you up. Though you be wounded again by sin, yet Christ will heal you. Though you feel dismay at your foolishness, yet Christ restores you to life in Him. And He assures you that His favor cannot be removed from you. Jesus is always in the business of turning our mourning into dancing. After those heavy moments in the second chair... In that second of the four chairs where a person has to speak out loud what the devil whispers in their ears. Then they move 
to the third chair. In the third chair, they begin to speak to themselves again. They begin to speak to that first person in the first chair. Not this time as the devil, but rather speaking as God the Father. Against the accusations of the enemy, they have to speak to themselves the truths that the Father says to the man in the first chair. They have to speak the gospel to themselves. It's not that they deny the accusations of the enemy or pretend that they have nothing to mourn over. What is striking about these moments is that these believers find joy in Christ through recounting their sin. Because they see the Lord's graciousness in the face of it. Every single person I've ever seen in this exercise comes alive with joy as they remember their hope in Christ. They may be weeping in that moment. But there's joy that is mixed into the weeping already. It's amazing to watch in real time as the Lord replaces that mourning with gladness. Their sadness over sin with the joy of remembering God's fatherly favor that was hard won for us by Christ. It's the truth that the Lord remains committed to us, even when we are less than fully committed to Him. It is that truth that God assures us really is true in Christ. And this led one writer to say that as Christians, we should be the saddest and the most celebrant people on the earth. We must be honest and devastated about the totality of our depravity. Yes, we have reason for mourning, but we must never stop celebrating the completeness of Christ's provision. Because in Christ, God takes away from us the gray overcoat of having sinned. Giving us in its place the bright clothes of forgiveness. And these glad clothes, the clothing of Jesus himself, is not for this age only. It is for today. But it's also for the age to come. The Lord is committed to turning our mourning into dancing both now and fully in the age to come. David knew that. That's why in verse 12, he knows that he won't be silent about what the Lord has done. He'll sing and give thanks for the, to the Lord, not just for a moment, but, he says, forever. And it's going to be no different for you and me. Because if the resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of God's intention toward you and me and the whole of creation, then the resurrection of Jesus is also God's promise of a day when there will be no more self-confidence left to strip away from us. There is a day coming when all mourning ends, when all sorrows cease, where death itself dies because it's been swallowed up in life. On the dawn of that day, God's promise to you in Christ is that you will see your joy face to face. And Jesus, that most welcome visitor, will make his home with you Ever. So sing praises to the Lord, all you who you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is yours in Christ, both now and forever. Would you pray with me?
Father, we praise you for the greatness of your promises to us in Christ. Father, we rejoice that the day is coming when all your anger will come to an end. And we will be left with joy forevermore. Father, we pray that you would hasten the dawn of that day. But until then, Lord, would you keep us close to you? Would you hold us fast by the faithfulness of your Son, Jesus? In all of our mornings, would we be quick to run to him and receive from him the gladness that you give to your people? We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.